um, these dear families after the service and encourage the young people too. We're going to be turning now to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in a special sermon um, for this occasion. This is found on page 179 in the Bibles in front of you. 179, and we'll be reading Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 25. Please stand out of respect for God's infallible word. This is Moses speaking to Israel. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you that everything in your word falls in the category of what we just heard as being for our good always. We are so thankful that you are seeking our good all the time and that one of the greatest ways you show us good is by teaching us and helping us understand the word. We pray that we would not only understand, but that that we would respond rightly with faith and where necessary with repentance, that we would turn from the sins that you expose And that we would do so because we know that Jesus is sufficient and worthy and that you would increase our love for him. And we pray in his name. Amen. I'm not sure if you've noticed or not, but we are a church that's blessed with many children. And there is no shortage of zippy energy in between (laughs) Sunday school and worship and afterwards, of course. So here's the practical and inevitable question that then comes from this, which is, how should we view the young children of this church? What does the Bible say about how we should view the young children of our church? How should we treat especially those children who are too young to understand human language, like like little Jonathan, or whose grasp on human language and concepts is just at the beginning, like a little toddler? Should we reckon them as part of the church? Should we treat them as Christians? What does the Word of God actually have to say in answer to these questions? And I hope you see there are lots of implications for this, not just for parents of young children. There are implications of this for us all as a body. One of which is, should children be welcomed into this worship service? How should Christian parents talk to their children? Should we assume that they're disciples of Christ from the beginning? or not? Should, how should Sunday school teachers and others who work with youth, how should they treat the young people in our midst? And more deeply, this is, I think, the most important, 
how do we want the young people of this church to think of themselves in relationship to Jesus from their earliest days? Do we want them, and is it even biblical for them to see this as their church? As a place that's for them, or are we supposed to be messaging to them like, um, maybe one day you'll get to enter into the fellowship of the people here, but really church is something for adults and older kids. Now, you know, normally my practice is to just open up one passage and kind of go through text by text, um, explaining the meaning of those one passages, one after another. But today, in light of what we've just seen, this great privilege of these three baptisms, I'd like to focus on the biblical warrant for why we do this. And I'd like to talk first about how God views old children in the Old Testament. That's the Word of God, too. And then we're going to talk about how does God view children in the New Testament. And then how do we see how this helps us as a church, not just to understand infant baptism, but particularly how we operate week in and week out, how we think about these little ones who are in our midst. So as we begin, we just need to clarify something really important. What we're talking about in this sermon is not children in general, but the children of believers, the children of God's people. And I believe that every Christian, this is every Christian, Baptist included, would recognize that in the Old Testament, children were part of God's people. They're part of the nation of Israel. It's right there in Genesis 17 that we just read. They were included in Abraham's household. They were circumcised and included in the promise and therefore later included as part of the nation of Israel simply because of their parents and their parents' identity and their parents' faith. So Abraham, he was supposed to, in Genesis 17 circumcise all the males of his household. And you, did you hear it was eight days after birth. So little, little, tiny babies. Very, very little. And what did he say? This is going to be a sign of what? It's a sign of the covenant. God is promising in this passage. He said it over and over. I hope you caught it. Not just to be Abraham's God, but he says, to your children after you, to your children after you, to your children after you. So circumcised baby boys say in their very, like, bodies, in their very flesh, they say, I belong to God. I belong to my father's God. Abraham's God is my God. Now, does this mean that every circumcised person in the Old Testament was a believer, a true person who really believed in God, loved God, trusting in his promises? I wish, <laughs> but unfortunately we know that is not the case. There were lots of circumcised people in their flesh who then had uncircumcised hearts that didn't really love God. So you can't control the saving power of God just by who gets the operation of circumcision. It just, it's not like that. But what does it mean? It still means something, and it means this that they are truly reckoned as God's people, that they really belong to God, and they really are his people, and therefore bound to keep his holy covenant. Remember, if you're a circumcised believer in Israel, you are a follower of the Lord God. You're someone who was called to not just know the covenant God made at Sinai with all Israel, but to live that covenant. And to do what God says. 
And so, there's the call that's upon them to keep God's commandments. That's something from the very earliest days. But there's also this really gracious thing. And isn't this incredible that God also reckons all the children of Abraham who are circumcised, who are part of God's people, as heirs of Abraham's promises. They are reckoned as the recipients of the land. They are reckoned as the rightful recipients of this joyful fellowship between God and his people that happens in worship. Those are things they inherit, not because they earned it, and indeed not even because they made this great decision, but simply something they earned as their birthright, as something that God gave to them by being born into the families of Israel. And this points us, if we take one more step back, this points us to a really, really big idea. And when you get this big idea, everything I'm gonna say in this sermon is gonna start to make more sense. And it's this, that God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. Of course, he's the God of our individual stories. But God deals with people as families. God deals with people as families. He views children as organically one with their parents. And that's what is in view in that passage from Deuteronomy 6 that we read um, earlier. And you can imagine the scene as something like this, like they're, they're sitting there at the family dinner table, and this probably isn't too long, far of a stretch. Maybe some of you have been in a very similar place, where the Israelite boy is wondering, why he's different from all his worldly Canaanite friends. And he's like, Dad, verse 20, this is a slight paraphrase, Dad, why do we have to do all this stuff? Dad, what's the meaning of all these testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And I want you to listen very closely to that question because it's actually very carefully worded. And I want you to hear the vacillation, the, the kind of uncertainty that is in this child's question. Did you catch it? Look at, the, look at the, um, the words that are used here. He says, the Lord our God has commanded you. You hear the difference? So on the one hand, he's saying, okay, he's my God too, Lord our God, but then he's commanded you, right? He's not exactly sure, okay, he's commanded my, my father to do this, has he really commanded me, right? And what does the father say in response? And, and, and picture it, right? Like, here's a kid who's like, he has to keep Sabbath, rest this entire day when all his other friends are doing this other stuff that they feel like doing. He needs to keep Passover. He needs to not eat certain foods. He's like, Dad, why are we doing all this? Has God really commanded me to do this? Do I really have to do this? And listen to how the father is taught to respond. I'm going to emphasize the pronouns a little overly much, but it'll make a point. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes. And he brought us out of here that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, God for our good always and on and on. You get the idea, right? The father is gently correcting his son. It's like, oh, no, it isn't just me, son. You're one with me. You're together with me. You're part of this. Yes, yes, you weren't physically present at Mount Sinai when God made those commands. 
but then probably the father wasn't either after the first generation, right? So he wasn't physically there. The kid wasn't physically there. And yet what the father is saying and what God's teaching him to say is, you were there. You were there in your parents. That when your parents made this covenant commitment to God and entered into this relationship with God, they entered into it not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their progeny after them. They were there. Yes, they were there when God made those promises to Abraham long ago. Was the promise just to Abraham? No, it's to all the kids who are going to come from him. They were there at Mount, uh, well, before Mount Sinai, when God redeemed them out of Egypt. Who was redeemed out of Egypt? Was it just the Israelites who happened to be in Egypt that day? No, it was all all of Israel who dwelt in Egypt and the offspring after them. After all, the kids afterwards will never know slavery in Egypt. Why? Because their parents were saved. Same thing with Sinai when God made the covenant. They were there. They were there. God deals with people as families. And of course, our individual relationship with him matters, and it's super important. I'm not trying to cast that up. I mean, there's a reason why the father is teaching his boy. You, boy, need to understand that your loyalty belongs to God. In other words, his individual relationship to God matters. His individual faith matters. And this is completely, completely important that we we never lose sight of the fact that when a kid is marked as God's people, that then means they now need to own it. Right? But the, the big idea here is that because the kid is already reckoned as part of Israel, it's not like he has this sort of like period where he's growing up and he has no affiliation and he has to make this decision, right, for himself. It's the complete opposite of modern, the modern parenting idea where you say, okay, you be you, you just figure out what works for you. I'm not going to pressure you. You decide you want to be a Christian, be a Christian. You want to be something else, be something else. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. No, every Israelite baby had an identity the moment that they were born. And that identity was that they were heirs of Abraham's promises and that they were in covenant with God. And so God put a mark, a permanent mark on their body and said, you belong to me. And if you think about it, this isn't all that unnatural even to us modern people. Think about this in other spheres. If you're a child who's born in America, you're a citizen simply by being born in this country. And what does it mean to be a citizen? Well, you get all the blessings. You get people protecting you, the police officers protecting you, and and all the other gifts that comes from being an American citizen, all the freedoms we enjoy. But then, of course, all the responsibilities. Like nobody consults you and say, are you okay with us imposing this law on you? Are you you willing to accept it? No, you've got to obey it, right? And we can even say to our kids, we won independence from Britain back in the 1700s. The kid enters into the narrative of the country simply by being in the country. None of us were there, right? And yet we are now reaping the benefits of what happened in the past. And so the Old Testament, it's super clear. The children of believers are part of God's people. That's God's view of them. 
They belong to him, and that's a wonderful gift. So what about the new, new covenant? Are things different now? This is the big question, right? Are things different now? And of course, there are lots of things that are different now. Now that Jesus has come, we no longer sacrifice animals. We no longer keep the old covenant feasts. There's lots of other changes, including the rite of initiation into God's people. Galatians and lots of places make very clear that we are no longer to circumcise people as the rite of initiation. That, that was an old covenant sign. That was a gift for the past. That was a good thing, but it was a shadowy thing. And now we, what happens? What have we been told to do? We baptize people. And that leads to another change, right? Circumcision was obviously only for males. Now we baptize both men and women and receive both male and female through the same rite into God's people. And so the big question is, okay, there are changes between Old and New Testament, and those are good changes. It's a movement from shadow to reality. Has God's view of children changed? Is that one of the things that has changed or not? And what's interesting is when you turn to the New Testament with this question, asking, what is God's view of children? Has it changed? Is there any New Testament teaching on this topic? In a sense, we hear nothing, like crickets. Like, there's nothing in the New Testament saying God's view of children has now changed. That is a very important silence. And this is very, very important that we say this very carefully, because Baptists, our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we, we definitely want to love and uphold as fellow Christians who love Jesus, they will still say, there's no explicit statement of an infant baptism in the New Testament, so we shouldn't do it. And the impulse there is good, right? The impulse is saying we want to go based on the Bible. Praise the Lord, so do we. And so they say no instance of infant baptism in the New Testament. It's actually not true. 1 Corinthians 10.2 actually speaks of a baptism. And this baptism, Israel was passing through the Red Sea, and Paul calls that a baptism. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Isn't that amazing? So the, the passage through the waters of judgment, remember the waters being separated, there's the dry land. Israel passed through those waters of judgment, and those waters came down and destroyed Egypt and his army, but not on Israel. And who went through on that dry land? Well, not just the mom and dad and the older kids who were able to talk and stuff. Well, the little guys, all the little toddlers, all the little infants also went through. There were many infants baptized into Moses on that day. So baptism is something that happened in the Old Testament, at least in these particular moments, um, like the flood. Noah and his family made it through the flood. That's also called a baptism, 1 Peter 3. But apart from this, we can actually agree with our Baptist brothers and say, you know, there is no, like, whiz-bang, proof text, here it is, early church baptizing infants. There are these household baptisms in the book of Acts. I honestly think those could go either way. So what does that mean? What does that mean? The fact that the New Testament is silent about any changes with God's view of children. Well, I hope you're starting to see that actually this silence is a really big point in favor of infant baptism. Think about it. 
To be a Baptist, you have to assume an enormous shift in God's view of children from the Old Covenant, when they're reckoned as God's people, God dealing with people as families. You have to believe that there's been this huge shift from how God's reckoning children of believers as, as His own in the Old Covenant to now treating everybody as their own individual person, no longer dealing with people as families. You, you have the church basically as a big collection of individuals. You have to believe that there was this huge shift in God's view of children and that God made this shift basically without telling anybody, where there's no revelation about it. I mean, do you remember how much talk there was in the, Old, in the New Testament about circumcision? Like, people were realizing, whoa, this is a really big difference. Some, some well-meaning people were saying, those guys need to be circumcised. That's how you show your loyalty to God. And so there's this big hullabaloo. In fact, entire books, like the letter to the Galatians, are all surrounding. Do we need to keep on circumcising people who want to become followers of God? And the answer is no. Well, isn't it amazing that there's no such discussion in the New Testament? Isn't it extraordinary that when children come up, there's just basically an ongoing affirmation that these are still part of God's people. So like Paul, he's writing the letter to the church, to the church, Ephesians 6, Colossians chapter 3. And he's writing to the church, and he's going through the different categories of people in the church. He says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And he gets to children, he says what? Children, love your parents, honor your parents. This is the commandment that has the promise. Obey your parents. Implication. Children are very naturally being included as part of God's people. Children would have been there as the letter was being read from the Apostle Paul. Children would have been sitting out there and responding because why? They're reckoned as part of God's people. Again, Romans 11 shows just how naturally the view of family is being reaffirmed. And it's not the main point of this passage, but it's still there. Romans 11, 17 through 24, you've got this analogy of the olive tree. And Paul's talking about Gentiles being included, and he says, look, if you're, if you're a believing Jew, great, you're still part of the tree, you're connected to the, the trunk and the root, which is Jesus, right? But what can happen? Well, if you're part of the God's people, you can deny God and therefore become a branch that's broken off and cast away. Just because you were born into the church, born into the people of God, doesn't automatically make you saved. No, you actually have to believe. Well, then he says that a Gentile can be joined into this tree. The way trees, you can take a live branch and join it to a live tree, and if you do it right, they will actually grow into each other, and the roots will start nourishing this new and foreign branch, right? And what's that showing? It's showing how Gentiles, believing Gentiles, can be part of the one tree, which is Israel, the new Israel, the people of God. And Paul is saying, you know, here, isn't this incredible how God's weaving together Gentiles into the people? But notice what's assumed in all of this, that as that Gentile is joined into the tree, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to start making his own little natural branches coming off. What does that obviously correspond to? Natural generation, parents having kids. And the implication is just the way God worked in the Old Testament, where the branches naturally coming from the tree, we're reckoned as God's people, so also God is still working today. So 
baptism, it doesn't automatically save people. That's what the point of the branch being broken off is, right? That you can be part of the tree visibly and yet not actually truly saved. Baptism doesn't automatically save people. It's about recognizing how we see God's people. It's about knowing who is part of God's people and recognizing them as God's people. And this is really important as we think about what does baptism mean? Baptism is not just us getting up there and saying, I believe in Jesus. This is my public profession. Okay, if baptism was first of all about us and what we're saying, then yeah, infant baptism doesn't make a lot of sense when you've got a little person who can't talk. But if baptism is first of all about what God says about this person, namely, this one is mine, then all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense that we would baptize not just adults, but also children. One more thing. Again, as we're just thinking about the implications of if it were to move from children being recognized as part of the Old Covenant, and now no longer children are recognized as part of the New Covenant, children of believers, do you realize this means a very big change in God's character? He says again and again and again, Deuteronomy 7, 9, Psalm 100, verse 5, 102, verse 28, 105, verse 8, could keep going. He says again and again and again that his faithfulness is not just for one generation, but to a thousand generations. What does that mean? That means that you should expect, if you are a Christian, that God will not only be the God of your child, but of your great-great-grandchild, of your grandchild, have your great-great-grandchild, I'm missing it, <laughs> you get it, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great thousand times. He is saying there will now be f- issuing from this person faith. I now claim this person's entire line as mine. Does that only apply in the Old Covenant? No, indeed. No, indeed. One last illustration on this, just to try to make the point clear. Is there a major change between Old and New Testaments? Imagine for a moment, you've got this faithful Old Testament, Old, Old Covenant family. This, this, this husband and wife who love God, like um, they're, they're following God's commands, they're waiting for the Messiah, and they have a little boy, and he's circumcised. Right? And this is in the first century, and along comes the Apostle Paul to their synagogue. He tells them, the Messiah has come, the one you've been waiting for. He's here. And they're like, yes, and they believe. What's the status of that little boy? The parents, they obviously are receiving baptism. Well, the little boy, is he now no longer reckon, reckoned as part of the people of God? He who is circumcised, well now, won't he receive baptism and as his parents are grafted into the new covenant, brought into the new covenant? Can you imagine the furor that this would have caused if you have all these circumcised little guys who are, not, who are being denied the waters of baptism? And yet we hear of no such furor. The only conclusion is that apostles, the apostles and the early church pastors baptized babies. And indeed, as we think about the implications of this in the New Testament, we want to say this, that Baptists very often are outstanding parents. Baptists often do an amazing job raising their Christians, 
to love and honor God. But as we think about raising a kid to love and honor God, what's involved in that? Well, praying. And when you pray, what's going on there? You're approaching the throne of God. How are we allowed to do that? Only through the mediatorship of Jesus. And what happens when we encourage our kids that they can actually overcome sin, that repentance will actually lead to true life? On what basis can we say that? Only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's, with all humility, I think there's an inconsistency when Baptists are raising their kids to, ra- to be Christians, to teaching them to pray, and yet they're, no long, they're not even recognized as part of God's people. On what, business, on what basis do you have the right to bring your kid to the throne of grace when he's not formally in ra- relationship with God? So we baptize our babies, and we raise them as disciples of Jesus because we're trying Always inadequately, right? But we're trying to be consistent with the whole teaching of the Bible. We're trying to be consistent with the identity that God assigns to them. We're saying, look, we recognize that God says these babies are his. They're part of his people. They're his children. And of course, there's a huge amount of teaching in the Old Testament on that front. I hope you've gotten that. But nothing's changed now in the New Testament in this area. God continues to recognize the children of believers as his own. And this brings us then to the final point. How should we live in response to this amazing outpouring of grace? Not just to us, but to our children after us. And I think the first thing to do is just to bask in the grace of this. This is such grace. I mean, think about it. When Jesus saves us, it is totally a gift. We didn't do anything. We can't even produce faith in our own hearts. God gives us the gift of faith. And infant baptism, if you think about it, is a really great picture of that. Here's this little helpless person. And what is God doing? He's reaching down saying, I cleanse you. I mark you as mine. It's a picture of all of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God intervened. And he graciously sent his son to take away our sins, And then he gave us the gift of the Spirit so we could receive that gift. And there's also this grace, that God not only reverses the judgment on us individually, but God also, when he sends his Son, he reverses all that sin destroys. So Jesus is not just the Savior of our souls only. He is the Savior of our bodies. He's the Savior of human societies where the brokenness of sin that reaches into our relationships with other people, what's going to happen on the last day? The kingdom of God's going to come and there's going to be finally a society where love prevails. Well, is there sin between parents and kids? Is there a sense in which parents often can impart their sin to their kids? Sadly, yes. What's the gospel saying to us? God is now taking your identity as a parent, sinful though you are, and yes, you do give, you do impart your sin to your kids, but God is saying, now, I want to impart your redeemed identity to your child. That as you, O believer, are redeemed, I now am assigning that identity as more important, as more primary than this child being born as a broken child of the line of Adam. 
No, you, O Christian, are part of my kingdom. You are a redeemed child now of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and now I am giving that identity to your kids as well. I'm marking this person as mine. That's grace. And we should be really thankful about that. Again, we're not saying that every child that's baptized is a believer. We're not saying that every, God's promising to save absolutely every child of every, every believing parent. But it does mean that every child of every believing parent should be marked as a disciple. And it's saying, God's saying, I am pledging to raise up the next generation of disciples. I'm pledging to use your humble parenting, your inadequate parenting, and the teaching and encouragement of other Christian adults to raise up a new generation of Christ followers. So that's one thing that this means. Here's another thing it means for you kids. Kids, this is your church. You belong here. You are the future of this church. And one day, when you have kids, God will call your kids his kids. He will take them as his own. His steadfast love is to a thousand generations. And I hope that encourages you. You're part of a good story. And let's remember, all of us, that God wants to view the children of believers as his, that they are his disciples. They are not, they do not belong to Satan. No, baptism is for disciples, and children are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. They're learners. Even little guys are learners. And so we need to baptize our kids, yes, and then we need to treat them the way baptism tells us to treat them. We need to treat them as fellow Christians. Do we know for sure that they believe? Well, no, but we don't know that about anybody, right? Only God knows the heart. And we need to talk to them in a redemptive way. I know I've used this illustration before. It's the last, last piece here. But imagine you're a parent or a Sunday school teacher, and one of the kids hits another kid. It happens, right? <laughs> and what are we going to say to that kid? Ah, uh, well, I guess it makes sense since you're not a Christian yet. Right? Are we going to say, oh, well, I knew you weren't regenerate, <laughs> or something to that effect? Um, no! We're going to say... Look, that's not how Christians treat each other. And you're a Christian. You've been shown much grace by Jesus. So now let's show grace to this kid who's making you really angry. Do you hear how the identity is being assumed and taught to that child, reckoning them as part of God's people? Baptism is King Jesus' seal, his official seal, that says this person is a public Christian. They are to be regarded as one of my own. Since the very beginning, he has regarded the children of believers as his. Who are we to question him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reckoning our children as your children. And thank you that the grace of Jesus flows through families. That from one generation to the next, children are raised up in the knowledge of Christ and then turn and raise up their children in the knowledge of Christ. And we pray for each of the children of this church that they would know who they are, that they belong to you, and that they would embrace that identity and grow into that identity, and that they would know that they belong, that they belong here, and that, they, that you love them. And thank you that you give us this wonderful gift, this grace of baptism that marks our children permanently as, as yours. And we pray in Jesus' name.